Well, what a great hope that we stand forgiven at the cross. Amen? And uh, that's what we've been celebrating this morning uh, with our communion. And we're going to look at this morning in the Gospel of John how we can know for sure that we are truly forgiven. This morning's message is entitled, Living in the Light. Living in the Light. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. One of the most uh, popular shows on the Sci-Fi channel right now is called Total Blackout. Some of you young people have probably seen that, right? It's an extreme game show featuring contestants who have to complete a series of nerve-wracking challenges while being in a pitch-black room. And so what would normally be easy and quick tasks, like identifying things with your hands or your nose or your tongue, or or collecting various items, or moving from point A to point B, become very scary, time-consuming tests, all because you can't see where you are or what you're doing or where you're going. And after each round, all the contestants stand over these separate set of trap doors, and they're told to jump all at the same time, and the doors open up for the loser who falls into a black hole and is eliminated. Total blackout. And while a game played in the dark may be a brilliant concept and may be entertaining to watch, it's no way to live your life. And yet, sadly, many people live today with that same kind of fear and anxiety as those contestants on Total Blackout, and life is a series of difficult tasks, all because they're living in the dark. And the sobering truth of it all is that those who are living in the dark... When they come to the end of their life, they'll not just get eliminated from a game show and fall through some trap doors and get get caught in some safety net. They will tragically die in their sins and experience the pitch black darkness of hell for all eternity with no hope of relief or rescue. The good news is there is hope of relief and rescue as long as we're alive and are willing to believe that Jesus is the one and only Savior from sin and are willing to follow and obey him as our master. The Bible throughout portrays all mankind, all of us, as helplessly and hopelessly wandering around in the dark. And darkness is really symbolic of man's sinfulness. Listen to some Old Testament passages Psalm 107, verse 10, there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. That's us, that we are living in darkness because we've rebelled against the words of God. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness, they do not know over what they stumble. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 4 says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so based on these verses and others, we know that we we were born into the domain of darkness. We are characterized by the deeds of darkness. We're blinded to the light by the prince of darkness, and we are destined to spend eternity in pitch black darkness. Again, not a very hopeful message, but the good news is, is that God has provided us with a light, and the Bible portrays Jesus Christ as that light, 
who came to rescue us from the darkness of our sin. In fact, when Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist, uh, rejoiced at his son's birth, who was to be the forerunner of the Messiah, he said, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Same imagery shared by the prophet in the Old Testament, by the psalmist in the Old Testament. He said, Jesus is the answer for us, those of us who are living, uh, who are sitting in darkness and living in the shadow of death, Christ will come like the sunrise after a long, dark night. And we know that this light-darkness motif has been a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. If you remember back at the very beginning in the prologue, John introduced Jesus as the light. Uh, It says in 1 John, excuse me, in John 1... Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then it went on, John went on in, in, in John chapter 3. To record the words of Jesus, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and has not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so again, how ironic in that when the light came, we ran from it. Uh, it would be like us being trapped in some deep, dark cave and uh, wishing we could be rescued, wishing we could get out of that predicament that we we're in, and all of a sudden we see this light coming down one of the tunnels, somebody's coming to rescue us, and instead of running toward the light, we run away from the light, and we run deeper into the cave. Why? Because we don't want to have our sins exposed. Why? Because we love our sin and we don't want to give it up. That's essentially what Jesus was saying. Well, here in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, in his own words, presents himself as the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you exclude the story of the woman caught in adultery... Uh, which was in chapter, uh, verses 1 through uh, 11. Uh, We talked about last week that some Bible scholars suggest that this was inserted here. Uh, It it wasn't a part of the original manuscripts. And so if that's the case, then chapter 8, verse 12, really follows um, naturally uh, chapter 7, verse 52, uh, kind of at the tail end of this discussion that Jesus was having on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Uh, He says, you are not also from Galilee, are you surgeons? See that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Um, You could continue on with this statement in chapter 8, verse 12. And uh, what we read here uh, in in verses 12 through 59 really, I think, uh, most likely occurred on either the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles or a day or so after the celebration was over. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 37, 
Jesus said, well, John records now on the last day, the great day of the feast, we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, right? Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he was making reference to the, the great water ceremony that would happen every morning, right? When the priest would go and get water uh, from the pool and he would bring it and pour it out onto the altar and the people would sing and rejoice. And, uh, and so he said that at the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Along with the, the water ceremony that was performed um, by the priests on a daily basis, there was, an, uh, there was another major tradition that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was the lighting of four giant menorahs uh, in the treasury or the woman's court area of the temple. Now, you've all probably seen during Christmas time, uh, the Jews don't celebrate Christmas, they celebrate Hanukkah, right? And you've seen those menorahs, which is the seven-pillared uh, uh, candelabra. And so they would have these, these uh, four huge menorahs or candelabras lit, uh, and the people would gather around the, these candelabras every night with torches, and they would sing praises and, and dance until dawn. And the light from these menorahs not only illuminated the, the temple area, but the entire city of Jerusalem. In fact, they nicknamed the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, they called it the Feast of Lights. That's how significant uh, this lighting of the, of the menorahs uh, played in, 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 uh, in the whole ceremony. As I was studying this, the picture that came to my mind was that of the Olympic flame. We've all watched the Olympics over the years, right? And that's, the, that's like a huge centerpiece, right, of the Olympic Games is when they come in and they light that Olympic flame and it, it kind of burns throughout the, the duration of the Olympics and lights up the stadium. It lights up really, you can see it from all over the city, and uh, that's really the idea here. And then at the end of the Olympics, what do they do? That flame is extinguished, right? And, uh, and that's what was happening here. Uh, as the flame was being extinguished, these great lights were extinguished at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles on that final day or the day after. That's likely when Jesus presented himself as the light, not just of the Jews, but of the world. And uh, we need to understand that in the same way that the water ceremony was, was intended to remind the Jews of how God provided water from the rock, right? Remember that? In the wilderness wandering. The, the lights were to remind them of how God guided and protected them through that pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Remember that when they came out of Egypt and uh, the, the, the Egyptians were hot on their heels, right? Hot on their tail. And uh, God intervened, right? And he came as a cloud by day and as a, as a flame of fire by night to really to guide them, not only guide them, but to protect them and put some separation between his people and their enemies. And so here in chapter 8, Jesus, I believe, is with that picture, that imagery in everyone's minds, he presents himself as that, if you will, the Shekinah glory of God that had led the people of Israel in the wilderness. And in verses 12 through 30, we're confronted really with, with the only two options in life when it comes to Jesus Christ. And here they are. You only got two options this morning. Only two ways to live uh, when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can either live in his light or you can die in your sins. Those are your two options. You can either live in his light, live in the light of Christ, or you can die in your sins. And that's essentially what Jesus is going to talk about here, and we're going to see in verses 12 through 30. Let's look first of all at, at this first option, and that is to live in his light. 
verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them. Again there, I think as a reference back to chapter 7, verse 37, where he, on the last day, uh, said, I... If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He said again. So he added this kind of, it was the water illustration and the light illustration back to back. And uh, the scene here has shifted um, based on verse 20 to the treasury. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury was where all the offerings were placed uh, in the temple area. It was one of the busiest sections in the temple um, it was also uh, known as the, the court of the women, so it was a kind of an out, outer courtyard, but it was the perfect setting for Jesus to make this cosmic claim that I am the light of the world. Now, we know when Jesus says, I am, right, these are uh, some statements that John highlights here in his gospel. This is the second of, of seven I am statements in John's gospel. Uh, uh, in chapter 6, He said, I am the bread of life. Here he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, Verse uh, Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then chapter 15, I am the true vine. And each of these I am statements were obviously intended to evoke memories in the minds of the Jews who were hearing him, uh, of that epic moment in Israel's history when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as the great what? I am. And so by taking on the, the Old Testament name for God that God had given himself um, back in the Old Testament, Jesus was claiming equality with God. And he would use this this device regularly. Notice even just in this section in verse 24, he says, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he. Notice the he's in italics probably in your translation because that wasn't originally there in the Greek language. He just said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In verse 28, he says, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am period, really, or common, not he, even though it's there in our English translations. And then again in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Okay, so again, this is all a reference that, hey, I'm taking, yes, don't miss it, okay? I'm taking, I'm claiming the name of Yahweh, Jehovah God, in the Old Testament, because I am he. He said, I am the light of the world, Again, Jesus clearly claiming to be God, again, because all of the Old Testament references to God as light. God revealed himself as light in the Old Testament in Psalm 27, 1, for example. And also, he was claiming to be the Messiah, who was to be the light to the nations. The scripture Old Testament talks a lot about the light. Uh, God is the light. The, the Messiah would bring light to the nations. And so he's referring to himself as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, Um, We already talked about this, how the world is shrouded in darkness, right, which is symbolic of our sin, it's symbolic of our ignorance, our our aimlessness, and so it's just a good reminder here that without Christ, there is no way to escape sin's darkness. Apart from Christ, we will always lack forgiveness, we'll lack knowledge, we'll lack direction, we'll lack real purpose in life. Except for those who follow him. Notice he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus promised here 
that anyone who followed him would no longer have to live in darkness. Now, this is very critical that we understand what it means to follow Christ. Because of all the statements that Jesus made during his life and ministry, he, none was more repeated than that phrase, follow me. Uh, it appears close to 20 times throughout the Gospels. In fact, it's used often just here in the Gospel of John. Remember when he met Philip in John chapter 1, verse 43, he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Uh, in chapter 10, talking about the good shepherd, Jesus said in verse 4, when, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow. Uh, verse 27, he goes on. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then if you remember how the gospel of John ends with the restoration of Peter after he had denied the Lord three times, uh, Jesus restored him uh, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and, and three times, he tells him to follow me. Uh, chapter 21, verse 19. Now this he says, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And again, in verse uh, 20, um, 22, Jesus said to him, if, you want, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the fact that these two words were uttered from the lips of Christ himself, and they dominate his message to mankind, indicates that they must be crucial to understanding the true essence of Christianity. In other words, in order to understand what it means to be a Christian, you need to understand what it means to follow Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, I think following Jesus is very simple to, to, to explain. It's much more difficult to do, right? But simply, following Jesus means coming to him in repentance and faith as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the first thing. If you're going to follow someone, you have to stop following someone else and follow them, right? So you have to turn away from your life of sin, and you need to come to Christ in repentance and faith, and then you need to commit your life to continue to submit to him and to follow him and obey him. You need to submit to his will for your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I think it's helpful if we think of the context here when Jesus was talking about this light of the world and he knew that what was in people's minds was this Shekinah glory, this pillar of fire by night and this cloud by day that led the people in the, in the wilderness and, and they followed that light. Listen to um, Numbers chapter 9 verse 15, because I think this gives us some insight into what does it mean to follow Christ. Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and the evening was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continually the cloud, so, so it was continuously the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of the Israel, Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. 
Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Did you get that? I mean, it, it makes the point, doesn't it? I mean, they were a complete submission, total obedience to the will of God, right, through that cloud, through his, through his presence, which was revealed as the Shekinah glory. And they didn't do a thing. They didn't move a muscle, right, until that cloud moved. And that's the idea of following Christ, right, that you do what he wants you to do, when he wants you to do it, right? You go where he wants you to go. You don't go where he doesn't want you to go. It's, it's a total obedience to and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so he gives us the encouragement, the, the promise here, that while we live in darkness as sinners, that Jesus is the light of the world and he who follows him will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, the Pharisees um, weren't too excited about that. That wasn't the good news um, to them like it is for us. Notice how they respond in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And so they just flat out rejected Jesus' claim that he was the light of the world. Why? Because he was testifying about himself. And we all know, this is their mind, self-testimony is inadmissible evidence in the Jewish court of law. Your own personal testimony doesn't count. Uh, it's not considered sufficient basis for a judgment to be made. Essentially, they accuse Jesus of being a liar. Well, notice how Jesus responds. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So in Jesus' case, uh, if there was anyone whose self-testimony was valid, it was Jesus, right? Why? Because Jesus was God, right? And God can't lie. And so he had already told them a number of times uh, that he had come from God and that he was going to return to God, but they still didn't believe him. And, and the, not only the religious leaders, but the crowds were, were all confused uh, about Jesus' origin, and his destiny, where he came from, where he was going. And so they refused to believe he was anything more than an ordinary man. And we, we saw this back in chapter 7 uh, when Jesus was dialoguing back and forth with the crowds and the Pharisees. And they're like, well, he is the Messiah, but he couldn't be the Messiah because he was born in Nazareth, but maybe he was born in Bethlehem. And he had to be, a, right? And it was just this big confusion. And they were basically in the dark is what was the problem. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. We know that the Pharisees judged others by outward appearances. Uh, Jesus confronted them about that in chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment, right? Uh, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. We also know the Pharisees were uh, self-righteous and legalistic and hypocritical in their judgment. We saw that in how they treated the adulterous woman in verses 1 through 12. 
But Jesus, on the other hand, um, didn't come to judge, but he came to what? Save, right? According to John chapter 3, he said that. Verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And yet Christ does judge, and when he does, it's righteous and true. Why? Because it's done in partnership with the Father. And you got to know that when Jesus said stuff like, like what he said here uh, in, in, in verse um, 16, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. And that's just, that just hacked the disciples, I mean, excuse me, that just hacked the Pharisees off. I mean, that was the issue, that was the rub with, with them, that, that he kept emphasizing this unity that he had with, with, with God, calling God his Father, and that just infuriated them, and, it, and in fact, it motivated them to, to kill them. That was the issue. In John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. In fact, in chapter 10, we're going to get there and see that this is just continuing to go on. Uh, Jesus said it as clearly as it could be said, I and the Father are one. We're the same person. And immediately afterwards, John records that Jews picked up stones against the stone him. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was fighting words to the Jews. You can't be calling God your father. You can't be saying you're the same person. You can't be claiming to be God. Well, back in John 8, verse 17, even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the father who sent me testifies about me. I love this. Jesus was basically acknowledging that they were right in the sense that according to the law of Moses, you needed at least two witnesses to establish the truth of anything. And he says, okay, I'll go with the law of Moses. You, you, you want two witnesses? Self-testimony doesn't count. You want two witnesses? Okay, I've got them. Me and my dad. Me and my dad. Is that enough for you, right? I'm giving you self-testimony, but I'm also got the, the, the testimony of my father. And then again, we talked about this when, when in debate, you can't answer the argument right? You attack the, the, the speaker, right? And that's essentially what I think the, the Pharisees were doing here in verse 19. They said, so they were saying to him, where is your father? Where, where's your father? And I, I think this was intended as a sarcastic question to, to really bring scorn upon Jesus, possibly implying that he was an illegitimate child. Because you know the, the word on the street, right? That, uh, oh yeah, his mom said that uh, she never, you know, was with Joseph before they got married, but she was, she conceived, you know, by the Holy Spirit, this, this child, this virgin. Uh, it was a virgin birth, right? And everybody's like, oh yeah, that's, we, we, we believe that, right? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you, you, seriously, you try, you, you try that one on anybody today and they would think you're a loony, you're crazy. Why? Because it's impossible, right? And so they probably thought, yeah, right, virgin birth, yeah, whatever, And so the idea here is that he was conceived in sin in their minds. And so they said, hey, where is your father? And he said to them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He says, listen, you don't know me or my father. And the only way you would ever know my father was to acknowledge that I am his son sent from heaven to save you from your sin and grant you eternal life. 
And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And again, this, this, you know this riled up those, those religious leaders because they were the ones claiming to know and love God. And Jesus was basically, you don't know God. And if you don't know God, how can you love God? And I think the point is simply this, that no one who rejects Jesus Christ as God's son can honestly claim to know and love God. There's a whole lot of people out there in this world who claim to love God. Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, other cults like that, they claim to know and love God, but if they deny that Jesus Christ is God's son, they don't know God. They don't love God, no matter how much they say they do or think they do or feel like they do. You must know Jesus Christ in order to know God. John 17.3 says it like this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can't know, you can't know God apart from Christ. And so the first thing that Jesus, uh, Jesus emphasized here was, was how important it was to live in his light, to live in his light. But if you choose not to live in his light, what's your other option? Well, he goes on to talk about your other option, and that is to die in your sin, to die in your sin. If you want to live in the light, your only other choice is to die in your sin. And in verses 21 through 30, uh, Jesus warned the Pharisees of the consequences of rejecting him as the Messiah. Look at verse 21. He says, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus has already said this to them back in chapter 7, verse 33. He had said that he was going to be there for a little while. Then he would go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. He's already, already said that. But now he includes this dreadful uh, result of rejecting him. And that is, that is dying in your sin. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm going to go away. You say, what does that mean? He's going to go away. Well, I think he was simply referring to his impending death, his resurrection, his ascension, where he would die, rise again from the dead, go back to heaven where, from where he came from. And um, people would be looking for him, Right? And, and, and by the way, that's true of the Jewish people today, right? Ever since Jesus went away, uh, the Jews have continued to wait for the Messiah, not realizing that he's already come. And they rejected him. And because they rejected him, according to what Jesus said here, they would die in their sin. He says it two more times in verse 24. Notice he says, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Listen, there is nothing more terrifying to think about than dying in your sins. I mean, this is a a horrific warning that Jesus is giving not only the Pharisees, but he's giving us today. That if we don't live in his light, we will die in our sins. You say, well, what's so bad about that? Well, let's talk about that. What what does it mean to die in your sin? Well, Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned, right? And we fall short of the glory of God. And it goes on to say that the wage of sin is death, right? Which is not just you get old and die. It's, it's a separation from God uh, in hell. 
in eternal darkness. And so all of us deserve to be separated from God in hell for all eternity. I mean, there's nothing worse that could ever happen to any of us than to be forever prevented from going to heaven. And that's what he's getting at here. He says, you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, you can't come to heaven. And yet that's exactly what will happen to anyone who refuses to to repent of their life of sin and believe that Jesus is God's son who came to take the punishment for our sin by dying on the cross in our place. Listen, you can either have Jesus take your punishment or you can pay your own punishment. Those are your only two options. And the way you pay the penalty for your own sin is to spend eternity in hell. That's the punishment. And so the only those who receive Christ as God's one and only sin bearer can have the hope of heaven. Notice how the Pharisees, just being in the dark as they were, how they respond to this. Verse 22, so the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And I think they were spiritualizing the whole conversation here and almost in a mocking way, presuming that Jesus was talking about killing himself. Talking about committing suicide. And, and, and the Jews, like many other religions today even, believe that anyone who commits suicide will end up in the deepest, darkest part of hell. Some even believe that suicide is the unpardonable sin, right? So what do you think? What does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach that anyone who commits suicide gets a one-way ticket to hell? Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I had a a great challenge and and privilege all at the same time uh, to do a funeral for a young gal uh, back in California when I was a youth pastor, and she uh, came from a Catholic background, and she uh, came to our church, went to a camp, uh, committed her life to Christ, and uh, began to grow, and shortly after that, she uh, met a crisis in her life, and and she ended up committing suicide. It was just a tragic uh, situation for her family, for our youth ministry, and uh, the, the family didn't really have any connections to a church, and so they asked me to do the funeral. And so here I was in this funeral uh, uh, home, chapel, with all these people from a Catholic background who were thinking in their minds that this teenage girl who had committed suicide was in hell, because that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And so I had the privilege of saying, listen, I'll tell you what, I've got good news for you today that what determines whether a person goes to heaven or hell is not whether or not they commit suicide, but whether or not they commit their life to Jesus Christ. And I gave them the hope that this young gal, as best we could tell, had truly committed her life to Christ. She made a bad decision, a sinful choice, and a moment of weakness, right? But that sin was covered by the blood of Christ. The key is believing here. Notice verse 24. Just jumping ahead for a second. He says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You want to know what the unpardonable sin is? Not believing. That's the unpardonable sin. Not believing that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away our sin and is the only way to have our sins forgiven and go to heaven. That's the unpardonable sin. It's it's, it's rejecting the the Spirit's clear testimony that Jesus is who he said he was. 
If you want to see where the unpardonable sin is mentioned, it's Matthew chapter 12. And I know this is a question that many people have. What is the unpardonable sin? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Uh, well, let's, let's find out. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. This is after Jesus was performing miracles, casting out demons, and the Pharisees blew him off and said, oh, you're just doing that by the power of Satan. So they attributed the Spirit's work to Satan. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, the Spirit of God convicts you that, that Jesus is who he said he was, that you know that you're a sinner, you know that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross in your place, and yet you refuse to repent, you refuse to believe, you reject the Holy Spirit's clear testimony, that's the unpardonable sin. Because guess what? If you reject Christ, right, there's no other way for your sin to be pardoned. There's no other way for you to find forgiveness for your sin apart from Christ. And so if you reject Christ, there's no hope of salvation. And ultimately, you'll be damned to hell for all eternity. That's the unpardonable sin, is rejecting Christ, or excuse me, the Spirit's testimony about Jesus Christ. Well, the way the Pharisees were thinking about this was, well, if he commits suicide, then we know he's going to go to hell, and that's why we'll never be able to see him or come to him, because surely we're not going to hell, we're going to heaven, which was the other way around, obviously. Verse 23, he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, but I am not of this world. And so Jesus confronted the the Pharisees as being very worldly in how they thought, how they acted, how they talked, whereas his thoughts, his words, his actions clearly proved that he was from another world. And we know, uh, we don't have time to get into it this morning, but you know that as as Christians, those who claim to be followers of Christ, this, is, this, this should be true of us, right? That we are called to be in the world, but not, what? Of the world. You say, well, how do I know? I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. Well, look at your thoughts. How do you think? How do you act? Look at your words. That proves whether you are of this world or not of this world. Notice verse 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? Who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? So they're just disgusted with Jesus by this point. It was like, who, who do you think you are? I mean, come on, to talk to us this way, to say these things, to make these claims. Who do, you, who do you think you are? And Jesus said, listen, I'm everything that I've been telling you I am. Verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he, was been, he had been speaking to them about the Father. Now again, this, is just, this shows how, how much in the dark they really were. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Are you kidding me? Right? This, it makes no sense that they, did, they didn't get this. But 
Jesus was simply saying, listen, I'm just telling you what my father told me to say. And, and so I'm worthy to be listened to and be, to be believed in. And Jesus went on in verse 28. He says, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. That phrase, lifting up the Son of Man, we've already seen that back in John chapter 3, right, where Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That was obviously a reference to the, resur- or to, to, excuse me, the, the crucifixion, right, Jesus being lifted up on the cross. We see that again in, in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 32, he says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So again, this is, I think, not not just the crucifixion, but also the resurrection and ascension, all of which prove that Jesus truly was everything he claimed to be, and he had said and done everything that God wanted him to say and do. And we know that after his death and resurrection, his ascension, many Jews did repent of their unbelief, right? And they confessed Jesus as the Lord, as the Messiah. We saw, see that in the, the, the sermon that, that uh, Peter preached at Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people, 3,000 Jews get saved. They repent of their unbelief and they confess Jesus as, as Lord and Master. And then I love verse 29. Look what it says. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Why? For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus never said anything or did anything that wasn't pleasing to the Father. Can you say that? I always do the things that are pleasing to him? None of us can because we're not... Perfect, right? Only a sinless person could claim that they're always pleasing to the Lord, and yet that should be our goal, amen? That should be our goal. That we could say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, I make it my ambition, whether at home or absent, to be what? Pleasing to the Lord. And too often, we do things to please who? Ourselves or to please others, Right? Whereas Jesus was only and always concerned about pleasing his heavenly Father, and that's the example that we should follow. The last verse here, he says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So even though he was being rejected, the the, the Pharisees didn't believe in him, many of the Jews did believe, and they placed their faith in him as their Savior and Lord. And he's going to speak to these people uh, in the following verses. We'll look at that next week. But for now... All of us have two options when it comes to Jesus Christ. We can either live in his light or die in our sins. It's your choice. It's your choice. I mean, if you choose to live in the light as he is in the light, then you will live in the light for all eternity in heaven. But if you choose to live in your sins, you will die in your sins and experience eternal darkness in hell. So let me ask you a very pointed question. If you died this week, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven because your sins are forgiven? Or is there a chance 
that you could die in your sins and go to hell. That's a reality for all of us in this room today. And if you reject the light of Christ in this life, you doom yourself to live in darkness forever. That doesn't have to be the case because Jesus is extending an invitation even today for you to receive him and to follow him as the light. In John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. You are receiving the light right now. All of us, as, we, as the word of God has opened up and has explained, it's Christ is extending an invitation for you to receive him as the light. You're having an opportunity right now. That opportunity may not last forever for you. And so take advantage of the opportunity this morning to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive the light. You say, well, what do I do? How do I do that? I want to do that, but I don't know how. Well, I would just suggest the first thing you do is that you pray, like Paul said in Acts 26, that God would open your eyes and turn you from darkness to light. That's a good place to start, so that you may receive forgiveness of your sins. Go home and pray that. Lord, open up my eyes. Turn me me from darkness to light, and would you grant me forgiveness for my sins? For those of us that are Christians, that we are followers of Christ, the Bible says that we are sons of light. In fact, while Jesus said here in John chapter 8 that he was the light of the world, in Matthew chapter 5, he says that we are the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God rescued us from the domain of darkness so that we could proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And while Christ is the light of the world, when we come to him and he comes into us, we become the light of the world as well in that Christ shines through us, right, to reach those who are still living in the dark. And you're going to be rubbing shoulders with people all this next week who are living in the dark. They don't have the light of life. Why? Because they're not following Christ. And our prayer needs to be, Lord, would you, would you cause Christ to shine so brightly through us, through our actions, through our words, through our attitudes, that people would see the light of Christ in us, through us, And they would be drawn to the light and they would want to know more about Christ. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings. It's not just so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we studied our Bible on Sunday, right? This is just a means to an end to get us back out there and to be the light in this world that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the light of Christ. 
Thank you for the way he's transformed so many of our lives, Lord, that we're no longer living in the domain of darkness, but we've been freed, and now we live in your marvelous light. And I pray you'd burden our hearts, Father, for those that are still in the dark, Lord, that we would want to be an accurate reflection of you, Lord, uh, that we wouldn't allow the sin in our lives to dim the light um, and to obscure the light from unbelievers around us, but we would live our lives every day to be pleasing to you. And as we, the, the more pleasing we are to you, we know the, the brighter our light will shine for Christ. And so would you grant us grace that we might uh, be these sons of, and daughters of light that you called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.